our weekly show. This week, we're going to be speaking with Tamara Drought. And, and Tamara is an amazing person. She's spent a lot of time at Demos, which is a policy research kind of a think tank. Her book, The Sleeping Giant, The Untapped Economic and Political Power of America's New Working Class, is an amazing read. And what's I think what's interesting, and Tamara, I want to hear from you in a second, but what's interesting about where we're at right now in terms of the political history of the country, and this is a theme that we're going to be touching on today in our, our talk, is we're seeing this wave of young activists turning into politicians, and we're seeing significant changes in local elections across the country in terms of demographic shifts, class shifts. We are seeing a new era being born right here, right before the midterm elections in 2018. And a lot of you have written back from the newsletter and you say, hey, why are you guys so interested in millennials? Why are you taking on a political topic now after you've been doing environmental films for 10 years? And here's the simple answer. And then we're going to hear from Tamara. The simple answer is we don't change the environment unless we change policy. We don't deal with climate change unless we deal with policy. We don't deal with food issues and water issues and drought issues and desertification unless we deal with policy. And the more you look at these issues, the more you realize that policy, class, and environment are intractably connected. So there's the answer to why are we moving into the subject, The Revolution Generation, the book and the film, both of which Tamara is in, uh, quoted widely in. Why are we moving in this direction? Because this is the direction where we begin to shift the world toward a world that works for more people. Tamara Drought, thanks for joining us. Good to be with you. Why are we seeing this rise in sort of working class issues in the, in the political sphere, especially with millennials, especially at such a sensitive time in our nation's history? I think we're seeing this huge burst of activism, one, all across the country, all age groups, but especially among millennials. Because if you think about it, you know, millennials are sort of like the guinea pigs of the, the three decade long conservative economic playbook, right? Like they tried it, tax cuts, trickle down, deregulation, defund government for everything from a state college, university education to healthcare. All of that has hit the millennials harder than any other generation. Listen, I'm a Gen Xer. It, you saw the beginning of it with our generation, but it's nothing compared to the decline in living standards that millennials have um, faced compared to their parents' generation. So I think, you know, everybody's waking up. Sometimes you have to hit rock bottom to realize you've hit rock bottom and we need to do something different. And I think the election of Trump combined with the economic insecurity that is pretty widespread today in America, have really unleashed a new uh, force of activism. Tamara, do you think, I mean, I kind of have a double-edged question here. One okay. is, have we hit rock bottom? Especially, <laughs> you know, you, you have another book, Strapped, uh, about America's 20 and 30-somethings and why they can't get ahead. Both books are available on Amazon. Tamara Drought, by the way, great books. Two books out. Uh, you've spent a lot of time looking at young people, the issues that young people face. Have we slash has the young generation really hit rock bottom? Second question is, are we really two different ideologies? Like, I know we have two different sets of policies in this country, the right and the left. 
But ideologically speaking, isn't it weird that so many of the working class issues have sort of morphed into uh, what has become uh, the mantra for both the right and the left? All right, let's take the first one, rock bottom. Um, I think we've hit rock bottom in terms of our democracy and in terms of people feeling like the system is no longer working for the benefit of all of us. And right, so we have a political problem and a political problem demands political solutions, right? So I think it makes perfect sense that you're moving into this. The only way we get better policy is if we have better politics in different politicians. And I think millennials see that in a way that other generations, particularly Gen X, did not make that connection. So I think the electoral arena has become something that everybody's now a little bit more interested in, but especially young people. Um, the second piece was, this is the problem with double double questions. What was your second question? All right, it's too much. The second question is, do we really see two different sets of ideologies? Oh, great. Like when you look at, when you look at people who supported uh, who supported Trump, and you look at people who supported Bernie, and you look at people who supported Clinton. I mean, I guess that's three different ideologies. You know, the core things that we're all looking for are they really different, or is it the leadership and the sort of trappings of how that is going to filter into the political caste system that it makes us feel divided? So I think a couple of things are happening. One, you're right that in some parts of his campaign, Trump had a populist rhetoric. But let's be really clear, he is not governed as a populist. And in fact, he's governed pretty much typically according to the Republican playbook, the, the absolute deepest, worst historic level of tax cuts to corporations and upper income individuals, um, all kinds of deregulations, you know, they're trying to attack the Consumer Protection Financial Bureau. So I think we have to put that aside. I'm convinced that all of the evidence shows people did not vote for Donald Trump because of his economic agenda. He voted for Donald Trump because he created a fear about what America was becoming and then connected that fear to people's economic anxiety and said, hey, you're struggling it's the immigrants' fault, it's Muslims' fault, it's black people's fault. Don't look at what we're doing over here as we're robbing the bank. Point the finger of blame at them. And it's been a very effective Republican strategy for decades, right? It's the the Southern strategy sort of, you know, went from dog whistle to bullhorn with Trump. That said, when you look at the amount of support for things like universal healthcare, truly universal healthcare, debt-free college, higher minimum wage, childcare benefits, that garners major support from both Democrats and Republicans. So I do think that there is a very untapped, strong uh, favorability rating for government doing more to help people live a decent life in this country. I, I want to talk about the incredible wave of young people that we are seeing running right now, right now. Here we are, September 2018. We're moving toward November, toward the big midterm elections, which are really going to set the stage for 2020 in a lot of ways. What are you seeing? Are, are, is, is Alexandria uh, Ocasio-Cortez, is she an outlier or is she a harbinger of things to come? 
I think she's a harbinger of things to come. And there's a couple of reasons why. Um, one, if you look at the differences in the generational uh, voting gap between who voted for her and who voted for the establishment, Joseph Crowley, big generational change. Millennials really showed up and showed out for Ocasio-Cortez. The other thing is you see these candidates that are refusing to play this idea of somehow moderating themselves in order to get through a primary and win a general. You see progressive campaigns being run in Texas of all places. You know, Beto O'Rourke's campaign has been amazing and it's been honestly unabashedly progressive. And when he was confronted in a town hall by somebody who thought um, that Kaepernick, you know, that, that the football players kneeling was wrong and offensive, he stood up and he said, here's why I think this is a patriotic thing that's happening. He didn't shy away from it. He didn't try and run away from it. And I thought to myself, I've seen so many democratic politicians in my lifetime handle a question like that by saying a lot of words, but essentially nothing, right? Yeah. We know where he stands. We know where Stacey Abrams stands. We know where Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez stands. The reality is this is a new generation of leaders who are letting people know where they stand and willing to maybe lose some votes because of where they stand, as opposed to, you know, basically being a ball of mush that nobody really knows what you stand for. So I think it is a harbinger of things to come. I think these are exciting candidates. And it turns out that when you run exciting candidates, people will show up and vote. Yeah. Yes. And they are. They're showing up. Isn't They're it? showing up. We've got the first... Uh, you know, potential Muslim uh, woman running for Congress here. This this race could be pivotal in terms of, you know, I, one of the things that I loved about your interview, we did your interview originally for the film, but a lot of your quotes matriculated into, into the Revolution Generation book, which is also available for pre-order on Amazon. The One of the things I loved about your interview is you said, you know, we need to create America to create an America as good as its promise. And we need to work backwards from that and think about what that really is. And for me, part of the promise of America is written below the Statue of Liberty in the poem, which says, you know, send me your tempest torn, all of these people from all of these different parts of the world, and I will, I will make them into America. This is the place where we embrace diversity, where we have freedom of religion, have freedom of speech. Um, it's an exciting time. Talk to me about the relationship between what we are seeing with young people running for office and the kind of intractable connection between class and environmental issues. Because I ask to a person, everyone in the millennial generation has something to say about climate change. But not everybody in Gen X and not everybody in the baby boomer has generation has something to say about climate change. Yet this is very front and center in their minds. How are these things connected? Well, they are deeply connected. And I think they're especially deeply connected when you bring in the class frame, because the reality is the folks, the communities that are feeling the effects of climate change, whether it's superstorms, um, higher asthma rates because because of bad air quality. All of this tends to be in working class, low income communities and layer onto that a race and ethnicity that you have communities that are battered by storms, 
breathing uh, dirty air are more likely to be working class communities. So they're living climate change in a very real, tangible way. I would even argue that the issues of clean water in a community like Flint is not only about the environment, but also about the austerity agenda that we have been force fed by the Republican Party for so long. You know, we have the reality that to save a buck, people in Michigan decided to trade their water supply. And now we have a whole community that's being poisoned by lead. It's just this economic playbook is broken and people are saying it enough. And the reality is we could actually propel economic growth by actually getting serious about dealing with climate change and preparing all of our communities to weather these storms and hopefully halt the progression of global warming. Yeah, I, we see it. And that's a, that's a great point. We see increased job growth in the countries, even the counties at the state level. Globally, the countries that have taken on greening jobs, greening the, the sort of meta economy. And we see it at the county level at states that are incentivizing solar, wind, you know, this is this is moving in the opposite direction. What do you think? What do you think is going to happen between 2018 and 2020, Tamara? Are we going to see a real class divide moving into a political divide based on class lines? What do you think is going to happen to the to the GOP? I mean, this the Republicans. How can they continue down this path? If so many young voters, you know, we have 50% young voters are registered independent. Mm -hmm. How are they going to get that, that vote if they're just diametrically, ideologically opposed? You know, I'm not a Republican strategist, nor a Democratic strategist, but let me say this. I think what's going to happen is 2018, I believe, and I hope, um, is going to show the Democratic Party that having principles and having big vision and a North Star that you can actually inspire people around is really important. We have, as progressives, an, a, a completely contrasting alternative view of how the economy works, what we should be investing in, the role of corporations, the way our political system should work that basically is, fun, is a fundamentally different vision of what America can and should be than what um, the conservatives and the Republican party has been putting forward. So I think 2018 is gonna show the Democratic party that it is time to stand for principles, um, even when they're unpopular, that the job of a good leader is to actually make what we wanna have become popular. Not seeing where people are at and going to them, but getting people where you want them to go. And I think that is the kind of leaders we're seeing in all of the campaigns that we've been talking about. That's what we're seeing. People who say, this is what I really believe in and I'm really passionate about it. And I understand that we can have differences. You know, Beto's uh, response to that was really great because the first thing he said is, I know this is contentious and good people can have differences of opinions on this. Here's mine. And then he gave a beautiful, beautiful articulation of why he sees uh, football players kneeling for the national anthem as a patriotic um, duty and as something that is fully American. So I think it's, I, I think 2018 is going to be super exciting. I think 
My hope is the Democratic Party is going to learn the right lessons from it and move into 2020 really strong um, with a new set of engaged voters across the country. Let's switch gears and go back to young people, because that is really the that's the subject of of this broadcast. And it's it's becoming the subject of so many people's attention as they realize largest floated voting block in the country. Uh, as they coalesce, as they vote together, as they share issues and ideas, this is really the weather vane. This is what we're going to look to to see where the country is going. Yep. What do you say to the quote unquote average millennial, two thirds of which don't have a college degree, many of which are working in the wage labor economy? They're concerned with big global issues like climate change. But when they look at the political arena, they see a rigged system that does not cater to their needs. What do you say to them? Do you tell them to go out and vote? Do you tell them to run for office? What do you say? Um, all of those things and to get involved. You know, you know, there's new research showing that just telling people, I think this is for anybody, but especially for young people to just say go vote is not going to do it. One, as yeah, exactly. Uh, if, if it was that simple, everybody would vote, right? Of all age groups. Um, I think the first thing is we are seeing a change. And I think it's because young voters are now being excited and motivated and mobilized by new candidates. And that cannot be underestimated, uh, overestimated too much. The right candidates is super important to getting young people engaged. The other thing I would say is the candidates are running on issues that young people really care about. So it's exciting to get out and vote for Alexandria or Stacy or Beto in a way that um, probably millennials haven't had that excitement, um, particularly for Senate and, go and gubernatorial candidates. So I think that's really important. Um, the other thing is I think there is momentum and that success sort of propels itself. When you get a sort of Alexandria to beat an established, you know, longstanding, powerful Democratic incumbent, success is contagious. People go, oh, we can make a difference. And I think young people are seeing that it is paying off that in order to change the system, we need to do two things. We got to have better people in the system and we got to push from the outside. And so I think that what I would say to young people is we can turn this around. It's not going to happen overnight. But um, thanks to the, the energy and enthusiasm of millennials, it's starting to turn. You know, on that note, I think a lot of people are disengaged and depressed. <laughs> when they look at, you know, when they look at the climate, they look at the, they look at the results of the 2016 election and, and, you know, look, there are different numbers, but roughly 50% of millennials are registered independent, 20, 25%, something like that registered Democrat and the rest are split. So, you know, 75% of them didn't get either of the candidates that they wanted. And when you see that kind of crushing opposition and you see the environmental catastrophes that they're inheriting and kind of the broken economy that's supposedly in growth. I'm not sure where the growth is. 
um, growth in wage labor jobs. I don't know. You can get depressed really easily. Do you still think you've done this for years? You've reached researched this. You've seen the ups and downs of, of, of all of these economic trends. Do you think there's hope? Do you think America still works? You know, can we get this country back on track and make a country that, as you said, is as good as its promise? Well, I'm always going to have to answer yes to that question because otherwise, why get out of bed in the morning? Absolutely, I think so. I think one thing we have to remember, and I try and tell myself this all the time, is that you can think about Trump as being a paradox of progress. It is a backlash to progress. It is a backlash to the first African-American being elected president. It is a backlash to then the Democratic candidate being a woman. It is a backlash to racial progress. So we're, this happens, you know, we make progress and then we have backlash. So I do think that we can continue to get there. I'll just give one example and it's a small one, but it's important. You know, until 2016, the democratic sort of playbook on college affordability was like, let's refinance interest rates for student loans. Not, we need to fundamentally refund this system so that young people can go to a local community college or a four-year state college and not go into debt and just work a part-time job. Like, let's put out a North Star big idea, whether it's debt-free college or tuition-free college. That says something, how quickly Medicare for All has gotten traction in large part because young people have said, yes, it's time. So I think um, there's a lot of latent support for big progressive ideas that has been latent for a long time and is now actually coming to the forefront. And young people are leading us into this new era. I absolutely think that we can make progress. It's great. Thank you. Tamara Drought, ladies and gentlemen, her book, The Sleeping Giant, The Untapped Economic and Political Power of America's New Working Class is available on Amazon and at your bookstore. Tamara, it's always a pleasure. Everybody share this. This is cutting edge information right here, right, we are, we are literally two months approximately before the midterm elections that will set the stage for 2020, which is really the foundation for the future of this nation and the world. Thanks everybody for tuning in. Share, 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 like us on Facebook, and we'll see you next time. Thank you, Tamara, for, for joining us. Thanks, take care. Bye for now.